Good morning. Welcome to our Lord's Day morning adult Bible class. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes again today in chapter 4, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Solomon is the writer. He wants his readers to understand the reality of life on earth. Particularly, <clears throat> if God is not in your life, if you are focused on and absorbed just by this world, <clears throat> and you're slowly pushing God away, what's left is chasing after wind, vanity, the vanity of earthly existence that ends in death. Rich or poor, smart or not, known or unknown, the end is death. And Solomon is eventually going to say very clearly at the end of the book, there's a better way to spend your time here under the sun. Put God in your life and keep him there at the very center of your existence and activity. Be God-focused, not world-focused, and take that mature responsibility with you into all of your earthly duties. Know that there will be good times and bad times here on earth, but you can be certain that there will be a good outcome if God is in your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 continues in pursuit of these themes, and we will be there after prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we express to Thee our respect and love with our gratitude for Thy Word to inform, to motivate, and to correct us. Through Thy Word, may our minds be opened and our lives changed and Christ exalted. In His name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Listen, please. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born or has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. 
Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. And how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Many of these passages contain one simple message and the message is repeated over and over again. If your life is only about what's here, you're going to be disappointed. And there is a theme running through chapter 3 and chapter 4 having to do with bad things that happen here on the earth that everybody encounters, young and old, rich and poor, highly placed or peasants. There are things that are common to earthly existence. And one is oppression. Let's talk about that a few minutes. Uh, oppression, bad things that happen. I'm going to give you some examples right from the news these past few weeks. Sutherland, Texas. In that awful church shooting, 26 people killed. Half that church. In Syria, 3,000 deaths in September. Many of those deaths, innocent children. Several law enforcement officers killed, over 60 this year, some within the last few weeks. Add to that the atrocities in South Africa, China, North Korea, Iran, Pakistan. This is right off the news feed today. Now look at chapter 4 in Ecclesiastes. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun... And behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Now, this has been going on since sin entered the world. Since the entrance of sin into the world, there has never been a time, there has never been a place of absolutely perfect, peaceful existence. No oppression, no war, no tragedy, no crime. It seemed to Solomon and it seems to students of history and it seems to us today, there's always powerful people who oppress, use people, engage in violence toward the weak and the weak seem to have no comfort under the sun. Solomon is saying to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, if this earth is all your life is about, you need to understand 
There are some really ugly things that happen here, and they happen over and over across generations and cultures. The opening verse in chapter 4 reminds us of the tears of the oppressed and the perceived but corrupt victory of the oppressors. The oppressors may think, we are winning, but it's a perceived temporary victory that the powerful oppressors and the evil people have over their victims. It was so bad. As perceived in the mind of Solomon, at one point he said the people who are already dead are better off. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Similarly, he expressed his emotion in verse 3. It's what you do in Hebrew poetry. You express your raw emotions. He said, but better than both is he who has not been. Some translations will say not been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Well, what's your first impression of what we've studied so far? It's pretty depressing, isn't it? It's pretty bad. Doesn't make you feel good. There's no joy in these words, but this is reality of life under the sun. So if you have no God concept and no God obligation and no grace of God that you've embraced in your life, this is what you get here. If you're just focused on this life. This is what you get. This is reality of life under the sun. You recall I said back when we started this study that sometimes Solomon rattles us with very bold statements. He's taking us to the conclusion that there is no heaven here on earth. This place under the sun is not paradise and nobody, no matter how powerful, can make it so. In fact, generally, the powerful people make it worse under the sun. Life under the sun is characterized by conflict and misery and strife and violence and murder. The poor and the weak suffer under the oppression of the strong and evil and powerful people. So if you attempt to, to find a good life just here, no God, just here, there will be times of intense disappointment and despair about the way it is here. We live, I've said this many, many times in this study of Ecclesiastes, we live on fallen ground since Genesis 3. There are people here on earth who are selfish and ungodly and hypocritical and corrupt and who care nothing about their fellow man. What we see is what Solomon saw. And it hurts us as it hurts him. And we cannot escape the ugly side of life under the sun. If God is just not in our lives, this is all we get. As you continue through the book of Ecclesiastes and you read further to the end of Ecclesiastes and then you just keep reading into the New Testament, finally there is relief. It's called salvation in Jesus Christ. We are only here for a little time. God invites us to trust and obey His Son who died for us. And that's the only way you can leave this earth with a good prospect.
of eternity. The only way to have hope and joy while you're living here under the sun is to be related to, through Jesus Christ, the maker of the sun. Your comments. Repetition here, no doubt, repetition. Solomon wants to drive home the point and startle us about life under the sun. So life under the sun, if you were to summarize chapter 4, life under the sun as described in chapter 4 has to do with oppression. It has to do with rivalry as the motivation for a lot of work. Work that may be left to no one. Isolation in life and work. The problem of government, Solomon continues to put before his readers the rigid reality of life under the sun. And the point is that without God, it's insufferable. Without God in your life, it's insufferable. The next part of this concerns rivalry and carnal competition that is seen in the workplace. And if you've ever been in any workplace... It's going to sound familiar. Verse 4 in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Sounds to me like Solomon, as he went through life, had these points of awakening where he said, Now I see what this is all about. And now I understand what this is all about. And then eventually God inspired him to write all this for us. Solomon came to these points of awakening where he realized how things really are here under the sun. And in his despair, and this was common to Hebrew poetry, he would exaggerate sometimes. He admires toil and skill, but then upon further examination of toil and skill and further thought about it, he realizes that the toil and skill often comes from envy and competition. Trying to do more and have more than others. Now, if you listen to me carefully, I put the word often in there. I said to you that toil and skill often comes from envy and competition here under the sun. Solomon reached this place of frustration where he said all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. And as I said, in Hebrew literature, in the book of Psalms, you find this and you find it here in Ecclesiastes. Writers would express their emotion through exaggeration with broad sweeping statements. Let's consider this a moment. Competition per se, nothing else attached to it, competition per se is not in every context evil. But when doing better than others becomes your substantial motivation in life, you've erred. When you are overpowered by the desire to do better than somebody else. 
That's vanity and a striving after wind because in the end everybody dies and in the end competition is all over. The cemetery is an even playing field. <coughs> the cemetery is an even playing field. Let me speak for a few minutes about the subject of competition. Competition is not a creation of Americans. Trying to outdo another is quite ancient. In sports, we accept competition as noble and energizing and mostly entertaining for audiences and a source of bringing in billions in revenue. Isn't that reality? Competition in sports brings in money, brings in revenue. So in some context, we have accepted competition. When it becomes the driving force of your entire life, you're corrupt. You're tainted with it. <clears throat> and in the Lord's church, there should be zero competition. It has no place in the Lord's church. There are much higher motives to energize us in the work of the Lord. Competition should never be accepted in the Lord's church. The New Testament passages that address attitude, interpersonal relationships, and unselfish humility are quite clear. You can read about it in Philippians 2. There is no place for competition in the Lord's church. Of course, Solomon is not talking about the church. He's talking about what he saw <clears throat> among skilled workers in the workplace in his time. And perhaps you've seen that in the office or in the factory or in the schoolhouse. Competition is part of what Solomon saw as oppressive and depressing when it's all-consuming. Here on earth, rivalry is born of pride, and it can quickly lead to strife and corruption. Solomon saw this as one of the reasons why he could say that if your life is absorbed by this life without God, one of the things you're going to run into is skill and work that is driven by nothing but rivalry, trying to be better than the Joneses, is the way we used to express that. Questions or comments? Solomon saw something else under the sun. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Verse 5. Some people, seeing oppression and carnal competition, just go wild and just decide to sit down and give up and do nothing. And they do nothing and their life becomes all-consuming. If you get focused on what's happening here on earth and you leave God and the gospel out of it, you can quickly be taken to such despair and depression, you just quit life. You just quit life altogether. Well, that's foolish, but it happens that some people just fold their hands and they have nothing to eat. And were it not for friends and family and government programs, death would be swift. See, if your life here is just focused here, 
under the sun, without God, it is vanity, and you may regress to extremes in behavior. Under the sun, there is oppression, suffering, envy, strife, and then you die. There is a better way. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Peace of mind is far superior to being an oppressor or being so driven by oppressed that you just sit down and give up and do nothing. Peace of mind. Now, at this point, reading Solomon and Ecclesiastes, you want to know, where can I find peace of mind? Just keep reading. And he'll take you there at the end of the book when he says, Fear God and keep His commandments. And then the New Testament will describe that in some detail. One of the most notable passages in Ecclesiastes is what we come to in verses 8 through 12. First, let's not neglect the primary meaning of this text in the greater context of Ecclesiastes. Solomon saw people on the earth often living in very lonely, isolated circumstances, perhaps because of oppression and rivalry they couldn't keep up with, or having no family to share their rewards with. And this becomes another example of how this world, life here, has various elements of built-in limitation and grief. Some people are very alone. Out of this observation comes Solomon's wisdom that while we're here on the earth, we need each other. We need each other. We need relationships with people. Not relationships that are just about rivalry. Relationships where we help each other. And that's how we shield ourselves against the dark vanity of what earth offers. Now, primary in Ecclesiastes is, at the end of the book, we need God. But once we recognize that, God says we need each other. We need good companionship while we're here. And the way Solomon puts that is utterly simple. <clears throat> utterly simple. Even I got it when the first time I read Ecclesiastes when he said, two are better than one. There's no theological shovel you need to dig deep into that, is there? There's no scholarly scalpel that you need to open that up and dig down into it and see what it's really about. Two are better than one. And he illustrates that in the arena of physical endeavors. This holds true. Uh, some jobs require two. Lifting your side and your partner lifting the other side. <clears throat> in the matter of finance and accounting, <clears throat> it is common wisdom, for example, for more than one person to look over the account or count the money. In education, in medicine, in transportation, when you fly, <clears throat> you want there to be a pilot and a co-pilot. <clears throat> Two are better than one. When Jesus sent disciples out, how did he send them out? Two are better than one. God has made provision for our social needs by making it possible for us to live and work together, one alongside the other. 
those who are alone suffer one of the indignities of living here on fallen ground. The commercial comes to mind. I've fallen. And I can't get up. It's been a long time since the commercial has run, I guess. And so you punch the little button. See, that illustrates what we're talking about here. It is this simple. In Solomon's monologue, he comes to this place where he says, two are better than one. Uh, there may be in us sometimes a misplaced independence that just connects us more to what's under the sun than the maker of the sun. That misplaced independence that says, I don't need anybody. Have you ever run across people like that? I don't need anybody to take care of me. I'm sufficient. I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody. Just leave me alone. Now that sounds strong and courageous and responsible to some, but I tell you what, God put us together into families, and Jesus built a church telling us to love and help each other. Solomon puts it this way, two are better than one. We get more done. We can defend each other. We can help each other get up when we're down. We are encouraged and more productive and warmer. We're warmer. And there's more joy in the labor when there's good, healthy teamwork. Two are better than one. <clears throat> in verses 13 to 16... Solomon says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from the prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 13 is written in proverbial format. Like a proverb. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. This may not only be proverbial... It may be biographical. It may be personal to Solomon. You can almost hear him talking about himself. Solomon saw this under the sun, perhaps in others, and perhaps as well in his own life. Poor but wise young men willing to learn in contrast to old foolish men no longer willing to take advice. We may see that. We may be at one end or the other of that statement. I'm going to let you decide that. But from this we learn, <clears throat> being old and having power doesn't necessarily mean you're smart. It is never smart to stop taking advice. Never smart to stop taking advice. Solomon says that some make the trip from the prison to the throne, but no matter if when they get to the throne, they don't listen to anybody. No matter if you, if you get to the throne from the prison, you get to riches from poverty, then you close your mind. 
And you don't listen to advisors. If you think you've learned everything you need to learn, you may be old and rich and powerful, but you may become an old, rich, powerful fool. Got it? There is much discussion in the commentaries and resource material about whether or not Solomon is talking about his own situation. What he says is an accurate observation of life under the sun, whether or not he's talking about himself or not, and to what extent <clears throat> you can decide. But in all this, he continues to make the point that if your life is locked into just what's here under the sun, it's vanity and a striving after wind. Life on earth without God just runs into these brick walls of disappointment and frustration because we occupy fallen ground since Genesis 3. Oppression, despair that could paralyze us, loneliness, rivalry, and old men who've maybe made an impressive journey from the prison to the throne, but once they get to the throne, they don't listen to anybody. They don't take any advice. Surely this also is a striving after wind and vanity. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Questions or comments before my takeaways? <clears throat> a model of work based just on rivalry alone is going to leave you disappointed. And it's going to lead to oppression and loneliness. If all your work is about is doing better than the guy in the next cubicle, is that really worth it? What kind of satisfaction comes at the end of the day? And what kind of satisfaction comes at the end of the life when you can say, I did better than the Joneses? A work model based just on rivalry can lead to the deepest kind of disappointment and oppression and loneliness. I'm thinking now about everything that is connected here in chapter 4. Solomon didn't see unconnected realities. All of this is connected. He saw life under the sun in all of its dimensions if it is pursued without God. And many people in the workplace are doing their work not because of productivity for the company necessarily or for the benefit of their family necessary and not for the glory of God. God is pleased with people who do good work, but just to do better than the guy in the next cubicle. That's vanity. That's a striving after when. As Christians, we believe the best work model is to follow Jesus Christ in everything that we do. In the office and out of the office, in the church building, out of the church building, for the benefit of our neighbors and our families and our loved ones and the cause of the Lord and to the glory of God, we do our work. Not just so, I did better than him. Did you see my work evaluation? 
boy, I just whipped the guy in the next cubicle. And I was promoted. Then, then what's going to happen if you follow that work model and he's promoted? Vanity of vanities. Chasing after wind. We need to follow Jesus Christ in all that we do. Life is best lived with good companions. Life is best lived with good companions. There is a social mutuality and companionship that God intended for man's joy. The first time we see that on the part of God is on the opening pages of his book. God saw that Adam was alone, and what then does it say? And it was not good that Adam was alone. See, social mutuality, good healthy relationships companionship, God intended that for our joy, our productivity, and our encouragement spiritually. <clears throat> and so the New Testament component of that is Christians are together in local churches, edifying one another, helping each other. We have close family and close friends, and, and we have each other to help us when we live here under the sun. We are fellow travelers and we are well served in forming good, healthy friendships so that there is united strength and teamwork. And then when you fall down, there's somebody there to help get you up. Life is best lived with good companionships. <clears throat> A king president or any leader is best served when surrounded by wise men, even if they're younger. Matthew Henry has said, He is truly wise and prudent who continues to respect and listen to sound thinking, even if expressed by men far younger. He went on to say, a king who is foolish, stubborn, and willfully resistant to listening to youth may become impoverished and forgotten. We can learn something from young people. Very typical for those of us who are older, I say that knowing I'll be there someday, Very typical for those of us who are older to look to the youth and say, Wow, I wouldn't do that. Why are they doing that? Why do they have that kind of hair and all that stuff, you know? We would be well advised to back away from some of that spontaneous criticism long enough to listen and learn from youth. I know one way in which you older folks have been required to listen to younger people. When your computer shuts down, uh-huh, who are you going to call? Going to call your grandkids. I know how that works. 
I teach young preachers in a workshop arrangement every year. When I do that, I always try to spend those days with those young men, not only teaching them, but learning something from them. And I pray I will never give up that source of learning and encouragement. I'm saying to us, a king, a president, a leader, or any old person is best served when surrounded by wise people, even if they are younger. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. I want to tell you a story. Did you hear a few years ago about the Canadian couple who won the lottery? Eleven million. And they gave it all away. Every penny. Alan and Violet Large. That was their real name. And I'm not ever going to recommend the lottery. But it illustrates something. They won millions and gave it all away. And when they were interviewed and asked about this bizarre act of largeness or generosity, the man said, It's not that I'm such a great, generous person. I just don't want all the hassle of all that money. That strikes me as wise. I don't know if I'd be able to do this, but strikes me as wise. He was content with what he had. And he knew that when you have a lot, with a lot comes very messy details that you have to navigate. With wealth, there is a certain stress factor that can rob you of quietness. Now, I know sometimes we'd like that stress factor. Give me the stress if it's accompanied by wealth. Sometimes we might want that, but it's a fact. Solomon admits it. He knew it. There is a certain stress factor that can rob you of peace and quietness that comes with wealth. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So, put God in your life and you're going to have the strength to cope with the vanity of earthly existence and there will be something far better. Far better after you die. Thank you for your attention to our study.